Welcome to Inspired from Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. The January 6th anniversary was a reminder that we continue to live in a time where conspiracy theories thrive, along with alternative facts and the so-called big lie about the 2020 elections. It's comfortably one thing we can all agree on. Truth is a hot and much debated topic. What is it? Who owns it? And what is it worth? This debate also inspired a retired professor of religious studies at Vanderbilt University, Dr. Lewis Baldwin, to ask this question. What would Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. make of it all? He tackles this question and more in a new book, The Ark of Truth. Part biography, part analysis, it's also a battle cry to seek out and defend truth, which Baldwin writes drove Dr. King's theology, ministry, and activism. It's a familiar subject for Baldwin. He's authored more than 60 articles and a number of books that examine Dr. King's life, including the award-winning There is a Bomb in Gilead, The Cultural Roots of Martin Luther King Jr. Producer Kimberly Winston spoke to Dr. Baldwin about his research and how this question drove Dr. King from the time he was six years old until his murder in Memphis in 1968. Dr. Lewis Baldwin, welcome to Inspired. Thank you so much for having me. Do you have a living memory of Dr. King? Were you? Do you remember him? Yes, yes. You know, when I, I grew up in Camden, Alabama, Wilcox County, Alabama, and Dr. King, one of his closest friends, happened to be my high school chaplain, Reverend Thomas L. Threadgill. They had been classmates at Mohouse College. So Dr. King made I would say some three trips to my hometown during the voting rights struggle in Selma. I grew up 35 miles south of Selma. And I happened, my brother and I, I'm the oldest of 12 and he's number two. We happened to see Dr. King at the Antioch Baptist Church in Camden, Alabama in early 1966. We were at the back of the crowd. We weren't very close to him, but we saw him standing outside on the lawn of the Antioch Baptist Church. He didn't preach. He talked about the importance of the wise use of the ballot and that black people should take voting seriously. But the one thing I remember about him was his statue. He was a very short man, maybe five, six, five, seven, um, but he had a booming voice. I remember a white policeman nervously circling the crowd that day when he was there. But his message to us was about the power of the ballot. The ballot. Yeah, mm-hmm. the ballot, about voting. Mm-hmm. It was in the midst of that voting rights campaign in Selma. Was it at that time, that encounter with Dr. King, that set you on a path to become a King scholar? No, to be perfectly honest, uh, I, I can't say that because I was only 16 years old. And I wouldn't think much about, uh, at that time, he was just another preacher in Camden, Alabama. There were preachers talking everywhere. But sure. I didn't have a sense at that time that Dr. King was any different from any other preacher. You know, I didn't have a sense of his importance at that young age. In fact, I would say that it was only after he was murdered that I really came, gradually came to a sense of just how important this man was in our history and in our struggle. 
So you, you're talking about a 16-year-old kid who was probably more interested in the girls then than in, <laughs> than in what Dr. King had to say. That's a truth for you. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that experience was very impactful. I want to ask this question in relation to the fact that you yeah. have a living memory of Dr. King. In the book, you write that in order for us to have a national holiday for Dr. King, we've had to sort of domesticate him. Yeah. Right. We've had to sort of tone down the fact that he was rather radical. Yeah. Um, he frightened some white people. Yeah. Um, he spoke truth to power and that we've domesticated him and that all we remember when the holiday rolls around is the I have a dream speech. When we domesticate him, do we lose any of the truths he wanted us to know? Absolutely. We dilute. Uh, the truth about him as well as about what he tried to teach us and what he struggled for. Uh, we have created this harmless, gentle, Southern Black Baptist pastor who localized nonviolence and redemptive suffering as the heart of the Christian faith. In the meantime, the heroic and radical dimensions of Dr. King's legacy uh, have gotten lost, are getting lost in our annual celebrations. We freeze him, as the great scholar Vincent Harding said, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial saying, I have a dream. But we don't think about that radical king of 1968 who preached, I see the promised land, who attacked capitalism who called for a radical redistribution of economic resources, who critiqued America's misadventure in Vietnam. So the heroic and radical dimensions of King's legacy are getting lost in our annual celebrations. Because we've created this harmless, gentle, Southern Black Baptist pastor who makes us feel comfortable living as we are. Uh, we hear right-wing extremists all the time using King's words against affirmative action, using Dr. King's words against critical race theory, the 1619 Project. There have been even arguments on the right-wing extremist side of the spectrum that Dr. King, if he were alive today, would be a first America Republican. But we know that in the late 1950s, Dr. King actually made a speech in which he attacked the first America committee of the early 1940s. He said it was a form of white supremacy. He compared it to Hitler's Nazism, the teachings and activism of Mussolini. So Dr. King was not a first America Republican. He was not opposed to affirmative action. He would not have been opposed to critical race theory because he understood that race is central to our understanding of American history. I think this effort to reduce King to a useful and convenient symbol to promote a conservative, social, cultural, and political agenda for America is what we are witnessing today. Why did you feel the need to write this book now? Yes, because I, I wanted to write a book that would speak to the challenges and the urgency of our times. 
Uh, we are living in an age of lies, an age of alternative truths, deception, disinformation, conspiracy theories. And I wanted to write a book that would speak to these kinds of challenges. Dr. King had a lot to say about the power of truth, the power of truth-telling and truth-sharing. He also had a lot to say about the moral obligation to speak truth to power. And I really think that we need a radical transformational figure like Dr. King today if we are to reclaim a truth-telling culture. We're not just talking about lies versus truth. We're not just talking about fact versus fiction. Yeah. There were many different truths Dr. King was interested in. He saw truth as, quote, not static, but as, quote, unfolding. Describe for us the many different truths you are referring to when you say the arc of truth. Well, Dr. King had in mind, as you well know, truth as the whole. That was the Hegelian concept that he borrowed. We have to understand truth as a whole, which means we understand religious truths, biblical truths, theological truths, experiential truths, truths about the natural order of things. And he always argued that we learn more and more about these different kinds of truths. And that's why he said that truth is a growing process that requires a lifelong search. Another thing that you write in the book is that Dr. King believed it was impossible to be a Christian or a moral or a rational person without constantly seeking truth. What do you mean by that in each of those three categories, Christian, moral, rational? He said for the moral and rational person, the pursuit of truth is inescapable because moral and rational persons want, by definition, to know more about the world, about life, about humanity. So that quest for them becomes inescapable. But again, he was concerned about all people engaging in this quest for truth because part of the problem in terms of humans being divided along lines of race and class, etc., was the fact that too many people were living in a distortion orbit mm. where they were not exposed to the truths about different segments of humanity, about life and the world. So the quest became all the more important to him. Because he understood that all humans have to some extent engaged in this search in order to become better human beings. So this quest becomes one in which we all should be engaged in, at least on some levels. Dr. King's quest for truth started at a very early age, you write. Yeah. He was exposed to it as a child. He was exposed to the truth of racism. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that story. Yes. When Dr. King was six years old, he had two white male playmates. And one day, the two little white boys, the two little white playmates told him that their father didn't want them to play with Dr. King anymore because he was a was black. And Dr. King was crushed by that experience. And he went to his mother, he said, at age six. And he wanted to know why. Uh, why white people in the South 
seemed not to care or love black people, not to care about or love black people. And his mother told him about slavery and about segregation as part of the social order of things. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be a part of the natural order. She was clear about that. Mm. And he said she explained to him the facts about slavery, the facts about segregation. And it was probably the first time that he had to come to terms with truth versus untruth. Mm. The first time that he was exposed to the polar opposites, truth and untruth as polar opposites. Uh, he had a questioning attitude toward life, even as a child. By the time he reached his early teens, he was talking a lot about studying philosophy and theology, which he considered even as a young age as passed to truth. So he studied not only sociology at Mohouse, but also philosophy and theology. And he found in each of these disciplines uh, passed to truth. I was born four years after Dr. King was murdered, and so I don't have a, a living memory of him. Mm -hmm. But the Dr. King that I've encountered in school, um, on television documentaries, in books, they've generally focused on his social activism, his biography, um, his place in history, but not so much about his personal Christian faith. Yes, mm -hmm. about his theology, but not his you know, personally, what does he believe in his heart of hearts? Yeah. So it was a surprise to me to read in this that Dr. King, who I think of as this tremendous Christian, yeah, did not believe in a literal virgin birth, did not believe in a literal bodily resurrection, and yet he was, in my mind at least, a tremendous Christian. How do you think he reconciled the truth of Christianity, and I mean the, the, the spiritual truths of Christianity, with the facts of the universe, shall we say? Yes, well, Dr. King understood the Christian faith in terms of the centrality of the love ethic. Mm. Uh, he uh, valued doctrine, but he didn't think that doctrine is the most important consideration when we speak of what being a Christian means. Uh, Dr. King always said that you can read the Bible, but we have to remember that in order to be a Christian, love is central. It's about the love ethic, the centrality of the love ethic. And it's also about how we practice the faith. Practical Christianity, applied Christianity became very, very important to him. If you live the faith, you can compel others to come to Christianity. You have to make it clear, not only through your teachings, but through your life, your activism, that love is central to the Christian faith. The love ethic was central in his reading of Scripture, mm. and not so much all of these doctrines that you might hear from fundamentalists and evangelical Christians. Another thing I was surprised to read here that I hadn't discovered before about Dr. King was his advocacy of science. He did not yeah. see science as antithetical to religion. He saw it as complementary. How did the openness to scientific truths affect his spiritual quest for truth? 
Well, Dr. King always said you can't separate the two because both are a response to human needs. Uh, we have a need uh, to grow and to learn from scientific facts as well as religious truths that through both we learn more again about life, about the world, and about humanity. He believed, and correct me if I'm wrong, that an openness to scientific truths could feed into a deeper understanding of spiritual truths. Am I correct in that? That's right, and vice versa. Mm. Is that by learning the truths of science, uh, we learn a lot about not humanity as a whole, and through studying religious truths, uh, we learn also a lot about science. Right. If we study religious truths in the right way. When Dr. King met Gandhi, you write that Gandhi said that truth is perhaps the most important name for God. Yeah. What kind of truth did Dr. King discover? when he met Gandhi? Well, primarily through Gandhi and Gandhi's concept of Satyagraha. Explain what that is for our listeners. Yeah, justice, uh, truth is equal love force, uh, justice uh, is equal truth, and so forth. Through that concept of Satyagraha, King understood that there is a connection between between truth, love, and justice. Mm. And Gandhi helped him in terms of making that connection. And not only is there a connection between truth, love, and justice, but also truth, love, justice, and power. Mm. And I think Gandhi and Paul Tillich was very important in this regard as well. And so was the New Testament, particularly Mm. the fifth chapter of Matthew uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to see the Gandhian influence in in that light. Mm. Is that as King sought to understand the connection between truth love, power, and justice. He found a lot in Gandhi that was acceptable. And you also write that one of the many truths Dr. King was searching for all his life, one of them was experiential truth. Yeah. Tell us what experiential truth is and how that played into Dr. King's activism. What experiential truths are those truths that we learn through the mere processes of living. And Dr. King talked a lot about growing up in the South and experiencing Jim Crow. I really think that without the experience of Jim Crow, without experiencing what it meant to live in community with blacks and non-community with whites, through those experiences, he came to a sense of what was wrong with society that God had made humanity to live in community, and yet with certain segments of of humanity, we live in non-community. So it is no accident that Dr. King was something of an activist all his life. His daddy was president of the Atlanta NAACP, involved in activism. And very early, he was writing letters to the Atlanta Constitution and other the Atlanta Daily World about racism and what was going on in black society. So I think it's no accident that at age 25, 26 in Montgomery, he's the leader of a movement Mm. that is designed to transform society for the better. 
not simply the South, but to bring humanity as a whole to this sense of the need to live as one and to function as one. Mm. So I think these experiential truths were quite important in that regard. I can't think of a more fitting follow-up to what you just said than to ask you to read the last paragraph of the book. Okay. The arc of truth is long, and its march and ultimate triumph in the universe was the gist of King's last prophecy as he stood before a cheering crowd on a drizzly night in Memphis. The message echoing through his entire speech, I see the promised land, was that truth always marches on, even in strange, awkward, and unanticipated ways to victory. Truth marches on because nothing can stop or defeat it. It marches on because it is imbued with the power and spirit of no surrender. It marches on because it has a date with destiny. It marches on in this post-truth era with the people of all races who raised the banner of Black Lives Matter, with women who comprised the Me Too crusade, with youngsters involved in the march for our lives against gun violence, with those who struggle against voter suppression and intimidation, and with those who refuse to bow to Trumpism, post-truthism, or any other form of spiritual and moral perversion and anti-democracy. It marches on with those who honor and celebrate King's legacy, not simply with words, but also with deeds that change lives, structures, and institutions for the better. Truth marches on because only truth can have the last word in history. Dr. Lewis Baldwin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That was Kimberly Winston speaking with Dr. Lewis Baldwin, author of The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Baldwin is a native of Camden, Alabama, and holds degrees in history, black studies, and American Christianity. Baldwin is a professor emeritus of religious studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. When we come back, my conversation with Daoud Kutab about the implications and fallout after the newly appointed Israeli security minister, Ben Gavir, entered the Al-Aqsa Mosque and announced intentions to change an agreement that has governed the sacred site for nearly 1,300 years. What it means and how nationalism and extremism are on the rise in Israel. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. 
We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. <laughs> 